Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded by me, Liam Miller. He, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Gayamago people. And uh, we're very excited today to welcome Michael Graziano. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Michael, for those who don't know, is the uh, Assistant Professor of Religion at the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, His research focuses on the relationship between religion, law, and government in the United States, and in particular, interested in how the US government decides what counts as religious and how it chooses to engage religious people's ideas and institutions. His book, his uh, quite uh, relatively recently released book, is uh, Errand into the Wilderness of Mirrors, Religion and the History of the CIA, which is out with the University of Chicago Press. You can get it now wherever you get books. So, Michael, I guess starting with a book, I guess where did the idea come from to go, you know what needs to be explored? Or even this idea that how did you first come aware, I guess, that religion was somehow a category um, that that played some influence in the in the OSS and then into the CIA. That like you know, that, that that initial, um, you know, oh, that's something. There's something here. And then how did that kind of then turn into? Actually, I think there's enough here, and I'm interested in this enough to make this a book. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. This was not in any way, shape, or form the project I had originally uh, okay. envisioned doing. Um, this comes out of my dissertation, I guess, with the main differences being that the final book is uh, much shorter and hopefully better, but (laughs) it's, uh, I've always been interested in religion and law. Um, And so in the US, I've always been interested in sorts of First Amendment issues, um, how that plays out in the public square. But my original idea for the project was actually something a bit different. I was interested in um, how anti-Catholicism in the United States played out with respect to national security concerns in the Cold War. And as I was doing some early sort of preliminary poking around in various archives for that project, I stumbled into uh, the story of um, Tom Dooley, which is basically just part of the uh, story of the CIA's efforts as part of the Vietnam War to get Americans to think about Catholicism differently. Um, and I just, I'd never encountered this. I'd never heard of this. And so I kind of pulled on that thread and uh, the rest of the project came together bit by bit. And so for me, I think it wasn't something that I had thought about before, but once I got into the archives and started tracking down some names, it made sense to me um, that for many of the same reasons I found studying religion interesting, mm-hmm. um, that intelligence officers uh, in various decades would have found it useful as well. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things I was struck by as I was reading through the book, and particularly in the early days, is how much this is, uh, this is a book definitely about the CAA and, and, and religion, but like how much this is also a book about religious studies um, and, and, and particularly how <laughs> religious studies um, shapes things more than maybe they, they expected. Right, so 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 much of what how the CIA is and the OSS into the CIA is going to approach religion is based on what you know academics and a bit of popular conscious thought about religion at the time in the forties and the fifties, or what they how they had and this this um, newfound interest in world religions. Yes. Um, so I guess talk to us a bit about yeah how how you know this the way the CIA bit about the way it was approached and how that was not like just invented in a vacuum, but was actually the outworking of yeah, the kind of the way that field was at the time. Yes. Um, 
yeah, I've always been interested in the history of the academic study of religion. Uh, I, I, I originally, um, that was another one of my ideas for the project early on was to sort of write up um, that history in North America. And I think, you know, the main problem with that is that there's like 17 people who might be interested in reading such a thing, right? Like it's pretty niche. And so one of the things I was really excited about with this project is that it does let me work in, as you noted, some of the other developments happening in the broader study of religion. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that immediately jumped out to me was um, some of the traces you can find in some of the actual kind of uh, academic work at the time. So um, Huston Smith's Religion of Man, um, I mentioned this at one point in the book, but it's the first or second edition. In the preface of that book, he talks about one of the reasons for doing comparative religious studies um, is that the U.S. military is going to need to know this stuff to like rule people or work with them or whatever, right? And so it's a very kind of applied religious studies um, understanding. And this was all part of a much larger piece of how um, folks in the U.S. Um, and, and other places around the world, too, were thinking about religion. And so the big one that jumps out to me is that both um, in the CIA as well as its predecessor, the OSS, and in a lot of universities at the time, religion was kind of seen as this universal translator. Um, I call it a Rosetta Stone in the book um, because one of the things that, one of the assumptions that people um, had at this time was that if you could understand one particular religious tradition, um, you could understand others. And it's of course a very like essentialist understanding of religion, right? If you can get to the core, you could figure it out and you could then use that um, to scaffold an understanding of other religious systems. Mm. And of course, for an intelligence agency, really for any sort of um, a government agency, the appeal here was that, you know, you wouldn't have to sort of have a study of each religion necessarily. You wouldn't mm. have to have specialists in every area. Um, if you can crack, you know, Roman Catholicism, you can figure out Buddhism or something, right. which um, sounds right. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but this is also some of the stuff we, um, we found in the archives. Mm. And so along with this, that basically religion could be a universal translator, um, that right, it could get past ideas or differences of language, ethnicity, um, culture. There's also the idea held by many in the US that um, the world's religions were not just sort of essentially linked like that, but that simply by virtue of being religions, they were anti-communist, pro-freedom, whatever that means, also pro-free market, which is curious, um, and would naturally sort of be an ally against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And that assumption, in many cases, I found largely went unquestioned mm. um, until sort of the uh, dramatic conclusion to my book is the fallout from the Iranian Revolution, when I think many analysts sort of realized that uh, religion could actually meaningfully challenge U.S. interests on the world stage, right? That it wasn't mm. a foregone conclusion that to be religious was to love the United States or something like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it might be interesting to take it there because you kind of, yeah, you talk about that um, in that chapter about, you know, that it was very much the the view on religion and what religious people would be like that led uh, the, the intelligence to think there's no way the Shah is going to be challenged. <laughs> like it's it's not yeah. a threat that's going to come from happen. the religious. Um, so, yeah, talk to us a bit about that and about how that kind of, I guess, as, as the outplay of this, because it's interesting you talk about how, like on the, on the other end of things, it was the kind of the early victories in, in, in World War II that was like, see, it works. Um, and, and then that kind of held, and maybe we'll jump into some of the other bits in between, but I'm interested in kind of how that, yes, I guess the, the as you say, the, the kind of came tumbling down a little bit um, there at the end. Sure, yeah. The I mean, 
the I'm just trying to think the simplest way I think to talk about it is that the as you mentioned right at the at the beginning of the story is a story about building confidence in these intelligence agencies because of the perceived role they played in the victories in World War II and the early Cold War. Um, it's you know probably worth noting that a lot of those victories, <laughs> the uh, what they called the religious approach to intelligence may not have been due for as much credit as they sometimes gave it. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, right, this sort of encouraged the idea that like this was a profitable avenue for intelligence work. And so it builds and builds. And after the Iranian revolution, you see a couple things happen, but the big one is that all of a sudden religion within the body of US intelligence work gets looked at much more critically. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the lead up to the revolution in the late seventies even, um, there's an uptick in coverage of Islam. Um, there's an uptick in coverage of Iran, but it's again, this idea that um, Ayatollah Khomeini is just uh, basically that he's crazy and he's sort of almost, he's almost described as like a time traveler, right? That he's this guy that's kind of from the ancient past. And there's all of mm -hmm. these incredible quotes in the document, uh, documentary record about, you know, there's no way he could run a modern country uh, because, you know, someone of his religious interests isn't interested in the modern world. He doesn't fit. That's the thing that keeps mm -hmm. coming back. He doesn't fit. Um, and then he does fit as it turns out. Right. And all of a sudden they sort of have to reassess uh, what went wrong. And so, from 1977, 1978, then to 1980, 81, you just see a total shift in how at least the declassified documents we have talk about religion. Um, and I think the big place you see that, uh, or the big evidence for that is in the much more suspicious stance that the U.S. takes towards liberation theology in Central mm. and South America. Um, that, right, these are Catholic folks doing it. These are priests in many cases. Um, but they're much more dubious about their aims in a way that just would not have been the case um, decades earlier. And I think that really is because the the model, the assumptions about world religions uh, fall apart in Iran for them. Mm. So you mentioned liberation theology there. So Catholicism and, and the relationship to Catholicism plays a really big part, um, you know, in this story. Um, as you kind of talk about, it was almost like how someone, how the book kind of came to be was those, those attitudes. Um, so you know, and you 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 kind of talk about one of the reasons it actually fit, at least in some ways, or, or, or became this kind of way of shaping things in the beginning was because of a kind of like the network of Catholicism that already existed. Um, until just looking at that and being like, oh, that <laughs> that's handy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then obviously also with with um, you know particular individuals' personal Catholicism also then uh, opening that up. So you know, I think. You know, because this is obviously, you know, you know, okay, I'm stepping out into my vague knowledge of US history. Uh, but like, you know, before there's even a Catholic president and all this, so like, you know, and 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 there's still a lot more tension, Protestant Catholic tension at this time. So it's I guess not um self-evident that that Catholicism would become this kind of would be this kind of shaping way of thinking about stuff or or, or viewed as a positive resource in the way of going forward. So yeah, I guess I'm interested a bit about that, how that at the start. Um, in those early days, kind of shapes a bit of what how, how this religious approach gets formed. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, well, yeah, as you note, it is a story about Protestant Catholic tension, at least on the the U.S. side of things, um, which certainly was um, still very much present um, during World War II and, and even after. And so, one of the things I note in the book is that uh, the sort of first intelligence agency, the Office of Strategic Services or the OSS, is led by this guy, Bill Donovan, who's a prominent Catholic at the time. 
Um, and it's curious for a number of reasons. One, that a Catholic would be put in charge of this, but also uh, just that the, well, the thing that becomes clear quite quick, quite quickly is that, uh, well, again, as you mentioned, it's really useful to have Catholic contacts in a global conflict or on the eve of a global conflict um, because, right, the Catholic Church has outposts in so many places and has so many people with so many different skills, language skills, right? I mean, from different cultures and nationalities. And that's um, that's not a small thing. And so one of the ironies of the this part of the book when I look at World War II is that there's a great interest among the Americans to sort of crack the Vatican, to sort of figure out how to access the Vatican as this information node. There was this idea, right, that um, mm. really, I mean, it's really fueled by quite anti-Catholic ideas, ironically, even by many American Catholics, right? The Vatican is this kind of like octopus with its tentacles right. all over the world that, right, information gets funneled back to Rome and the Pope is just sort of like flipping through reports and whatever. Mm. And of course, it's worth pointing out for anyone listening, we now know that was not the case, that the Vatican was largely locked out from the war. They had very limited information, but the assumption um, on the Americans was that they had tons. And so right. uh, it was very interesting for the Americans to try to access this. But of course, then the Americans who were trying to access this information then had to sort of turn around and sell it to their higher ups back in the US. Mm. And in many cases were met by very dubious um, you know, assessments that like, well, this is Catholic stuff, right? Or well, this is from the Vatican, right? Can we really trust this? You know, These people aren't uh, pro-American, they aren't pro-freedom, whatever. Um, and it becomes clear, I think, to many uh, of the intelligence operatives that I study that by the end of World War II, if they're going to develop the Vatican, if they're going to develop um, a study of world religions as a profitable way to challenge communism, they're going to have to change or attempt to change how Americans think about Catholics more generally. Mm. I want to come to that point in a second, but I was just also sure. thinking as a side point, it's kind of, you know, fortunate in a lot of ways that this, this Catholicism link uh, came in early because otherwise, you know, how would we had all these spy movies with all these great scenes in Catholic cathedrals, people That's meeting and true, sitting yeah. in a pew and the other guy sitting in the pew in front, we're not really talking yeah. or, you know, fake confessional booths, like all that kind of, you know, right. what would have we done it's without for drama. It yeah. really is. <laughs> um, so I, I think, you know, it is interesting to think about that, as you said there, that what did the change the attitudes at home? Because obviously like a lot of this book, you know, a lot of this story is about, you know, because of the nature of the CIA, foreign engagement right engagement outside of the borders of the u.s but as you have there's this distinct you know need to to shape your know, attitudes and shape the way religion is configured um in you know domestically as well um so so was that something that there was like you know and you know an like, I guess how to how right <laughs> in, in some way the question like you know was it like you know more of an explicit campaign or was it this you know um yeah, trying to just change those attitudes. Um, yeah, you know, because that's an interesting idea, right, that, that the domestic attitudes of Americans have been shaped, you know, by an intelligence, you know, uh, agency. Because I think there's a bit in the book we kind of talk about, you know, religion was a source for how they, this world religion's idea was a source for how they thought, but was also something they then shaped. Um yeah. In the way it was thought about, so it was it was not just all this. Okay, we're just taking something and consuming it over here, but it also then kind of became a back and forth relationship. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, that's a good way to put it. I mean, it's a back and forth relationship. The um, as the as these intelligence officers are doing their work, they're of course 
shaped by, you know, their own education, their own culture, the kinds of religious tropes that were common at that point in American mm. culture. But, you know, uh, one of the things I try to show in the book is that by the, I mean, really even by the early 50s, but certainly into the, you know, 60s and afterwards, there's also just tons of other very important changes happening in American culture. Mm. And so the question about, you know, how much was this sort of intentional or planned? I don't know that it was. I, I think it's planned in bits and pieces. I think certain um, efforts are put into place to sort of shift American perception sometimes, but it's um, it's very haphazard. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is the challenge of telling the story is because I think the evidence is pretty clear that it's haphazard, but I, I also argue that uh, I, I don't think that makes the consequences of this work any less sort of challenging or profound because mm. um, all of this is happening alongside you know, um, major changes to how Americans are thinking about um, religious minorities, racial minorities. Um, there's an, kind of a huge explosion in domestic interest in world religions, right? Like the uh, Life magazine features articles about like, what is a Buddhism and stuff like this, you know, and sort of yeah. explaining this to like a rapt audience about, um, you know, what's going on here because there's a demand for this information. Mm. And the intelligence officers themselves are affected by this. And so, I think what you end up seeing is that what starts as an interest in Catholicism, especially in World War II, um, particularly in relation to the Vatican as like this sort of information network becomes and, and over time morphs um, into seeing Catholicism as a model for understanding other world religions. Mm -hmm. And that, right, if we can do this with Catholicism, we can do this with other traditions and then think about all the other sources of information we could tap or um, you know, contacts we could reach. Mm. So you, it was interesting you talked about, a little bit touched on this earlier, like the way this whole thing then crashes into this, this general idea of American exceptionalism that, um, you know, as you said before, that naturally religions have to be uh, pro-democracy, anti-communism, pro-free market. And I think about, you know, so you've obviously taken this kind of essentialized idea of what religion stands for. And then there's this identification of, and, and that at its essential is also um, America uh, and what America stands for kind of thing. Mm, yeah. um, and, and, and bringing those, those together. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how much you've got, you know, thinking about how other intelligence agencies in different countries, like were, were thinking about religion or approaching religion, was there um, distinct, you know, some, some crossover or was this kind of like, you know, was there a very distinct American brand for how they were thinking of going about this that, that, that kind of was birthed of that um, exceptionalism? Yes, um, I've, uh, I have not done uh, that work myself, but I've read it, um, especially with um, the example of the British in World mm -hmm. War II and afterwards. Um, they, the, the British themselves had an office sort of dedicated to this um, kind of work, which I think in, in my understanding anyway, stems out of the much longer sort of colonial mm -hmm. project there, right? Religions as a means of control. Yeah. Um, but I think the U.S. is different for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is just the, of course, the peculiarly different U.S. history and culture, but the second and probably more important part is just the scale. Um, mm -hmm. And so right after World War II, just the scale of the U.S. national security state, the amount of funding, um, the ability for the U.S. to project power globally, right, and including through its intelligence services, I think just sort of puts um, puts this um, in a different league entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so 
and you've got another chapter of the book. You you, you focus on on Vietnam um, and, and 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 the conflict there, and you know U.S. take you know taking the imperial place of of France in that way, and and that also then feeding into how to think about Catholicism as there's this desire to say you know um, to show that this this group of, of South Vietnamese Catholics are going to be naturally aligned with who we are. Um, and so that both kind of, you know, and and the US thinking that, hey, an appeal to Mary will be enough right. to to form an alliance here to show that we're, you know, simpatico and, and all of that. So, you know, yeah, again, this kind of idea that I guess in this religious approach can trump all other kind of um aspects of, of allegiance and identity and and desire kind of thing. Um and I guess, yeah, curious about, you know, because that's obviously also coinciding with, this, again, this this popular interest in world religions. So, like, you know, and, and this probably coinciding with, hey, we're now involved out in this region of the world in a, in a bigger way, so we want to know that. But also we think this particular region can, can um, in Catholicism, can um, it can come in in a strategic way here. So I'm curious a bit about the the way the the, the uh, Vietnam conflict or the, and the lead-up to um kind of shapes this story yeah there's a there's a really fascinating document that i use in the book but it's a record of um a conversation that uh president eisenhower had with his national security team as the sort of very early american involvement in vietnam was getting under in, in the 50s um and someone suggests you know like well what about the religious angle like what can we do about religion here and and someone points out that well it looks like you know most of south vietnam is is buddhist and another person sort of at the table, right, says like, oh, that's not going to work because the Buddha was a lover rather than a fighter. And we need someone who's going to fight. <laughs> and as someone who like teaches religious, I mean, just makes me pull my hair out because right, it's like it's again, this most like overly parodied sort of essentialized idea of religion. Right. And that's just where the conversation stops. Like Buddha was a lover, not a fighter. Like, I don't know what that means. Right. And I do this for a living. Um, but <laughs> They uh, they say, well, you know, there's a Catholic minority and someone says like, ah, like Joan of Arc, like she was a fighter. And they're like, yeah. Right. And so they sort of decide to play up the Catholic element in South Vietnam. And that like decision making process right, leaves a lot to be desired in terms of why you're choosing what you're choosing. But that seems to be what it was. Right. It was just wow. like that. And already, right, they're not consulting, you know, world religions textbooks necessarily. I, I don't know for sure, but I would wager, right, that's informed by pop culture coverage of various world religions, something you can mm. read in the paper one day, you know, whatever. Um, but then we're off to the races. And so there's this mm. appeal to sort of make South Vietnam, at least make it appear as a sort of devoutly Catholic country threatened by godless communism mm. as a means to both raise, uh, you know, American awareness of, of Vietnam um, to sort of make them think of it as a Christian country that like we need to help and, and everything else. But then also ideally, and it was never clear to me in reading the research here how this was supposed to happen, but also to sort of bind South Vietnam together in a way that would make it um, more resilient to or against uh, the threat of communism. Mm. And so, yeah, you end up seeing, I mean, what I think is just sort of absolutely wild stuff, right? That like the way to motivate Catholics to tell them to do something is to tell them Mary wants them to do it, right? And you get the right. sense reading the reports of these guys that they're like, yeah, you know, the whatever the, you know, North Vietnamese Catholics don't want to move to Saigon and then you say like okay well what if we drop flyers that say like the Virgin Mary's moving to Saigon right and people are like yeah and you can hear them like high-fiving and stuff in the background right like that'll do it and then they're just sort of confused you know when this doesn't um, pan out although actually in that specific case 
Uh, this was another instance where, you know, for a variety of reasons, there's been really good, well, there's been really good research done that shows for a variety of reasons, there, there was the sort of demographic shift, this immigration shift south to Saigon, probably had nothing to do with those flyers, right? But nonetheless, this is another instance where the sort of feedback loop is like, hey, this works, right? Like mm -hmm. the religious approach is, is paying off. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I don't, you know, part of the challenge with this book is not turning it into um, something where uh, the US government was sort of never successful in, in using any of this um, because, not not for any kind of moral reasons, but just because, right, there, there were times where this pans out. There were sort of, like, there's reasons to study religion and to yeah. apply it in certain contexts if your goal is to manipulate people or to achieve some sort of desired end. Um, and it does pay off sometimes, right? And we do see that in other places in Vietnam. But yeah, the, the appeals to Catholicism were pretty, um, not sure the best word, pretty crude, yeah. uh, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It's interesting, you, you kind of talk a bit about the book about you know, both both intelligence histories and and histories of religion, um, you know, can have this tendency to to you know veer toward the exotic, right? Like you know, there there are ample stories of truly wild things that that you know are salacious. And I mean, you open the book with one that you know um, yeah. Uh, yeah. using telepaths to try to spy on on on, on uh, Pope John Paul II from from a distance, yeah. you know, and like you know, there's, there, you could just write a book that's just like yeah, I guess I imagine peppered with salacious exotic stories but i think even just from that kind of account then is so important to say you know how much of this is mundane right how much of this is like people sitting around a table oh i've kind of you know somewhere from pop culture got this idea of x equals y um right. so let's do it and 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 catastrophic consequences in some ways or sometimes dumb yes. luck or, or whatever but like you know that that's an interesting thing and as you say and obviously um applies to how we think about religious studies too and you know it's um so much of this is just ordinary people doing ordinary things thinking about how they can yeah get through a certain situation in the most uh advantageous ways um yeah yeah i mean yeah it's yes working in religious studies and sort of you know visiting intelligence studies intelligence history which is a fascinating sort of subfield in its own which i've really enjoyed my time in but they both very much struggle with, um, I think, assumptions from people outside those fields, which is right. They expect, um, you know, just really over the top dramatic stuff. Uh, really, you know, intelligence histories are supposed to be filled with like explosions and car chases, <laughs> right? And again, it's that, I think it's the pop culture feedback loop about James Bond or, or whatever. And I run yeah. into the same thing in uh, religious studies when I'm in my, um, you know, introductory courses, uh, when I teach about world religions or something like this. Um, you know, anytime I use the word sacrifice, I'll always have some students who are like, oh, human sacrifice. And it's like, no, we're not like, no, that's not, <laughs> this is not that class. Right. Like, but it's again, this idea that this must be what we're mm. talking about. And yeah, the reality in both religious studies and in intelligence, uh, studies, I think is that the most interesting stuff is happening in places that just seem really absolutely boring, just dreadfully <laughs> mundane, completely unsexy. Um, but that's where a lot of this real work is happening. And I think, paying attention to it can be boring, but I think, right, the the consequences of that are can be quite serious and it pays mm -hmm. to pay attention to it. I mean, just, you know, for people who've seen James Bond movies, you know, uh, I, I don't even actually know how to sum up a James Bond movie, right? I mean, it's just nonstop action, but like, mm -hmm. you know, in a James Bond movie, he never convenes like four people from the University of Chicago to advise him on like a proper like tea ceremony in Japan. And then three of them, 
right? Disagree with the fourth because <laughs> of like some long held departmental grudge from 15 years ago. And it's just like the kind of ridiculous stuff about being human that shows up again and again in these stories um, is, you know, that plays a role in the outcomes we get. And I, I think it's important to pay attention to that. I have heard that the latest, you know, the, the suit to be released last Daniel Craig Bond film is almost three hours. So maybe that's why. Maybe they've, you know, really filled <laughs> yeah, it out with some scenes that like scene. that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they <laughs> haven't reached out to me to to consult, sadly. But I mean, if they do, I'm, I'm definitely open to it if anyone's listening. But yeah, you know, I'm sure we could work in that scene somehow. Yeah. yeah. I'll tag Miramax when we when we post right. this episode Good. just to try to like, get some get some juice. Um so you, I, I'm interested to think, you know, we started right at the beginning talking a bit about how you know, religious studies of the time and this this developing world religions paradigm shaped a lot of what happened next. And now as someone, you know, writing this book, you know, as a professor of religion um, and, you know, it, I guess if you think, like, you know, is there some sort of lesson <laughs> for religious studies and how, how we think about both in the academic and the popular realm, the way we, you know, talk about religion um, and, and particularly, you know, religions beyond you know, religions out there kind of thing that, that maybe is, is heated from, from this book in some ways. I mean, like, you know, the way that it's, you know, so quickly utilized and, and um, yeah, to, to, to be a, a manipulative tool in order to secure power and, and goodwill. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things that, that jump out to me. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, one way to read, the book and, and one way I wrote it was really with um, with an eye toward the consequences of these kinds of ideas, which were usually paid for by people who weren't American um, and in various places around the world, right? And, and many of those stories have been sort of overlooked or brushed aside um, in part because they are so mundane, right? These really sort of small acts that, you know, time and time again, um, add up to something that, again, I, I think we should pay attention to. Mm. Um, but I guess another thing or another kind of related part of that is that, you know, um, academic theories, um, ideas we talk about in the ivory tower do have real consequences. Um, similarly, I think pop culture matters. I think paying attention to pop culture is actually important, right? I mean, it's usually sort of dismissed as, or it's easily dismissed as frivolous or silly, right? But the kinds of things that interest people, why they interest people, what sells, um, this is important stuff. And the story I the story I tell in this book is really only a story that I was able to put together because I tried to pay attention to those things, um, and and I guess the only other thing that comes to mind right now that I threw out there is also just again the the sheer scale of uh, the U.S. government and its spending and its reach around the world. Um, I think is something that a lot of folks. American and not sort of take for granted, even if, you know, they don't, they're not wild about it. Um, but it enables, it has enabled and does enable the US government um, to do some remarkable things. And I mean, that in a sort of literal sense of the word, right? Neither, not necessarily like a good thing, just remarkable. Um, and that's a story that I think is sometimes uncomfortable for, particularly for Americans to pay attention to, but I, I think is also just really, really important. Mm. So, Maybe as we kind of start to, to land the plane, thinking about you know kind of you say the, the climax of the book in some ways is the is the seventy nine um, you know the, the uh, Iranian Revolution and how that you know creates this real shift in okay, how is religion going to be utilized, thought about, changed, and then we know obviously 
post September 11 and 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 the the change in terms of this I guess I'm thinking about how do you feel like even though there's been that shift as you say there's that, that dramatic change in that how does this history from you know from the the early days of the OSS to kind of that time help I guess create that foundation for thinking about the last 20 years um and and you know the whether some of those changes even though you know even though there's been a change and a distinction like there's still a sense of like you know this legacy of this influence of the time before or even just thinking about this is what they're trying to get away from sometimes you know if you know what the th- people are trying to avoid you kind of can sometimes yeah. understand a bit of what they're trying to do now yeah um i think one thing that really lingers with me is i mean it sounds like a cliche but it's much easier to find something if you're looking for it. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean, even though the context has changed, uh, you know, I, I don't really go much past the early eighties in my book. I, I don't touch on post nine 11 stuff. I think the idea still though, that many Americans and many Americans in positions of power have had, right. That um, religion is just sort of an incredibly important category for everyone around the world, right. You can understand so much through it isn't to say that that's necessarily wrong in all cases or or something like that, but um, this insistence, right, that religion is a a central category through which we understand people or make policy or determine foreign policy or or whatever, Mm. um, I think uh, does repeat some of the challenges um, that I chronicle in in my book. Um, And I mean, there's been, of course, just a dramatic 180 degree turn in understanding of, of Islam. I mean, in, in my book in the early cold war, uh, you know, I just talk about how much Islam was held up as like the, you know, this great anti-communist ally in part, cause it was seen as, you know, old fashioned, but kind of charmingly so right. And like, you know, they were really quaint, but like they offered you a lot of tea and like, you know, it was just right. that kind of thing, which of course, right. was fueled by all sorts of, um, you know, racist and um, sort of anti-Muslim assumptions anyway, right? Even as it had this kind of nice, you know, veneer of shiny paint on it. Um, but of course that's that's changed, right? And now um, we see the consequences of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I would say that again, the, the fixation on um, religion as a sort of meaningful category for national security is something that we, yeah, absolutely still see in the headlines. Mm. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Folks, the book is Errand into the Wilderness of Mirrors, Religion and the History of the CIA. As I said, out with University of Chicago Press. Please check it out. We've barely scratched the surface of the book in our conversation today. There's so much uh, to be gained and and to be enjoyed uh, in its pages. Uh, Other than the book, uh, Michael, is there anything else you want to promote or draw people's attention to at this time? Uh... No, <laughs> I have I have a new book out and an 18 month old at home. So those are like my yeah, my enough. RAM is already sort of spinning. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, I appreciate. It. Thanks for having me on. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. And uh, folks, we'll uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye.